I am grateful that God takes us one step at a time. And if we understand what God's doing behind all of this, it doesn't seem quite so overwhelming. Um, you know, Jesus is unwilling, God is unwilling that any should perish. And he says, come unto me, all you that are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And God will lead us one step at a time. Um, and it's as we come to love God that just as, you know, in being married to, to Rose, um, I love to do things that make her happy. It's not legalistic. It's not a burden. It comes out of my love for Rose. And I do things, you know, that I would have never thought of doing before. In fact, I kind of think, what can I do, you know? And I think that, that when we talk about the honor of God, you know, and we, and, and we discover some of those things in the Bible, it's, it's a joy. You know, God set apart a special day. It honors him, it blesses us. And, and, and what a wonderful thing. You know, most of us, I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself, I would be a workaholic seven days a week, early to late, if God did not force me to take a day of rest. And those who are opposed to the Sabbath, they're shooting themselves in both feet, in my opinion. And, uh, and so it, it really comes out of the, the, the depth of, uh, of the love relationship. And so we discover things that, that honor God. And, uh, and it's you know, like when you're married, you know, uh, you do things, you look a certain way. You know, I, I must admit, I dress a little better now because of Rose and those kinds of things because uh, I know what's important to her. Not that I was a sloppy dresser before, but, you know, when you're married, life changes. Um, and then I, I talked about uh, how, you know, we can better understand God's concern about some things as a result of his passion for those that don't know him. You know, I can't speak for you, but speaking for myself, I am way too complacent in life. I can drive through entire city blocks and, and not think twice about people that are living there who, if they don't know Jesus, will be lost. You can identify with that, can't you? Uh, now, if something were to happen to Rose or to my kids or something like that, it would deeply, deeply affect me, right? I would be very concerned. And I would be saying, please, please pray for my girls. And if I knew someone in the air, I'd say, would you please go? And I'm going to, you know, I, I'll, I'll, whatever you need. If you need gas money, I'll send you gas money. And if they cared, they would take the time and they would go. And it's the same thing for God. He's got all these children on planet Earth. Every child, every human being alive is a child of God. And though you and I don't feel the same sense of urgency, God does. And he says, I have children in Benton Harbor. I have children in Berrien Springs. And won't you please go and visit them for me? And, uh, and I'll help you get there. I'll send you quote-unquote gas money. Do you understand what I'm saying? And God says, you know, there's only so much time left. You only have so much money. And, and you know, if I sent money and I discovered the person wasted it on themselves and they never bothered to go see my kids even though they'd promised there might be a problem, wouldn't there? I'd say, hold on, I thought you loved me. And, and I think we have something so valuable that at some level our responsibility is almost criminal. You know, I, 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 someday I think people are going to say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me what you knew? 
You know, if we had a cure for cancer, for example, and we could magically bring some vaccination, and we said we chose not to share it ever, how would, how would people feel about us? They say, what in the world are you doing? And I think we need to, to value what we have as Christians in that way. And I believe that uh, when we understand the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, there's a special significance to what we understand. Now, the Bible says that God doesn't do anything without letting the prophets know. And it's sad how little is understood out there. I was uh, at a revival conference uh, put on by a friend of mine, and a very well-known evangelical Christian was one of those people speaking. This friend is an Adventist. And the speaker got up, and uh, some of you have heard of this man, Paul Washer. He's, uh, he's a little bit like the David Asher of the evangelical world. I mean, he says very strong things about marriage and families and everything else. But he got up and, and he says, I'm, a, I'm willing to answer any question except the book of Revelation because no one can understand the book of Revelation. I thought immediately, that's the one book that says, you know, the blessings that comes from studying it. But, but we do understand. You know, if you start in the book of Daniel, that's the ABCs, and then you add the book of Revelation to that. What is impossible to understand becomes possible, and it lets you know what is going on, especially in Revelation 14, you know, Revelation 18, some of those, 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 those chapters. So God has children that are dying. And so he has a sense of urgency and a sense of concern about how we use the resources that he's given us. Um, and then there's this matter of uh, a relationship. Rose and I, we're very happy together. I have to tell you, marriage is a thousand times better than I ever dreamed possible. I want to be on a perennial honeymoon. And uh, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But, you know, we spend time together. And, and, and there's something. But if, you know, if I went home and I said, Rose... You know, I don't choose to spend time with you. I would rather spend time looking at pornography on the internet. She'd say, hold on, hold on, hold on. (laughs) That doesn't go with my relationship. And so there are things that have to do with our relationship with God that God says that will not work. Now, I used an extreme form, right? But there are things that God knows get in the way of our having the close relationship with him. And that's why he is so concerned. And I believe that when we read the Bible... On the one hand, it sounds like obedience, but actually, I would like to suggest it's more about trust. Uh, I tell people that actually, this is like the great owner's manual of the universe, right? Uh, At least of planet Earth, for sure, but I think the universe, perhaps, as well. I mean, the principles would be the same. And uh, if we trust the builder, we'll take seriously what he's put in his owner's manual, right? And one time I was asked to give a talk on health. And I prayed. I said, Lord, what is it that you want me to share? And he gave me the shortest sermon I've ever given. And it went something like as follows. You know, you are marvelously made. You're the crowning point of my creation. If you were to take as good care of your bodies as you do your vehicles, you would enjoy much better health. That's very short, but to the point. None of us, I doubt, have ever put oil down you know, the gas tank. We've never put, uh, you know, gas in the crankcase, that kind of thing. Because we know it would ruin, right? It would ruin our motors. And, and we say, that's not legalism, that just makes good sense. And I would hope that we would get to the point where we would take what this Bible says 
and believe that it makes the same practical ABC sense as anything else. I believe that Satan works very, very hard to get us to distrust the manual because he knows if we don't trust the manual and we do other things than what the manual teaches, he can get us into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of mischief. Okay? So what I shared last night may seem a little overwhelming, but it wasn't meant that way at all. It wasn't meant that way at all. It's all about, you know, being in love with a person and wanting to honor that person, being concerned about what that person's concerned about, and realizing that we have to do something to have a good relationship with him. I believe that's kind of the... The, the simple form of understanding what, what sin is all about. It's, it's taking us from being self-centered actually to, I'd like to say, God-centered. Because to be God-centered is to be other-centered as well. Okay? So uh, this evening we want to continue learning, but I wanted just to share that I'm aware that uh, I shared some high-fiber whole wheat last night. Uh, but I praise God that he is more than able to bring us to the point where his, uh, his biddings are his enabling. What he asks us to do, uh, you know, he puts the can't do into a can do and a won't do into a want to. That's what he does. So I'd like to kneel and pray for just a moment and then we'll continue. Father in heaven, it's a, a privilege to gather together as members of your body. I thank you that every person in this room is important to you. That you have a purpose, a godly and wonderful purpose for each one of our lives. And that someday we have the hope of meeting together in heaven with others surrounding your throne. Lord, sadly, a lot of people on this planet don't know about it. First, they've seen misrepresentations of you. They've also um, you know, been led into things that keep them from really knowing you. And they're looking for something that speaks of authentic Christianity. Help us to learn tonight to know how to live in such a way that we might honor you and others will want to know you because they've seen you living in us. Please do this great, great work. I've been chosen. It's a sobering responsibility. Uh, Father, these people don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. Please humble me. Please give me your words, your messages, your illustrations so that they would be blessed. We pray that we would succeed tonight, but we're not praying for our success. We're praying for your success. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like us to start with the story of Zacchaeus uh, this evening, if you would. Uh, if you want to, go to the book of, of Luke. Luke 19, to be exact. And I start with this story because we want to learn a little bit about confession tonight. But we want to first see the, the, uh, the mercy and the kindness of God in this story as we begin. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Well, when we read the word that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, what words, what, what comes to mind? He was a chief of the mischief makers there in Jerusalem, so far as the people were concerned. He was one of the chief people who, 
you know, extorted the people, took money that he shouldn't have had, defrauded them by not only charging the tax but adding whatever he wanted and apparently had been so successful that the Bible said that he was, was rich. So here's a man that, uh, that had used, you know, a, a role with the hated Romans to enrich himself and actually had risen to the point where he was a, a chief tax collector. That also meant that he was a person in his community that was especially hated. Hated because of his job, hated because of his, uh, of, of his theft, ongoing fraud, and, and hated because of his association with the hated Romans. He was not looked up to in any way in his society. It's not hard to imagine that Zacchaeus didn't have a high regard for his own relationship with God. He probably thought that uh, he didn't have much of a chance with God. But somehow in hearing about Jesus, um, he wanted to have a relationship with Jesus. He wanted to see him. And it says he could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature. I wonder if tonight, if there are some of us, maybe many of us who at times feel we are of short stature compared to other people when it comes to walking with Jesus. Now, don't let anyone fool you that because they stand in front of everyone else that they feel so strong with the Lord. A a document that I came across some time back that really fascinated me was a, uh, a general conference speech given by um, Carlisle B. Haynes, one of our highly regarded evangelists, and in that statement he said, I have been a leading evangelist in the church for the last 15 years. But over that time I had a growing uneasiness that there was something wrong. Wasn't sure of my assurance of salvation. And I responded by getting a little busier, being a little more careful about how I kept the Sabbath and, and other things. But that uneasy would not, uneasiness did not go away until eventually I came to the realization that I was a lost man. He said, I did not know Jesus. And talked about how he came to know Jesus. But he said, I worked for 15 years not really walking with Jesus. So it is possible to not be nearly as strong. And I think many of us, when we sit in the pews, would you not agree we say, if only I knew Jesus better. If only I really had that connection with him like I would like. Well, Zacchaeus felt short in comparison to everyone else. But Zacchaeus wasn't being measured by the crowd, was he? He ran, he climbed up the tree, ran up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, what did he do? He looked up at him and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down for what? Today I must stay at your house. Have any of you ever felt like you needed to go on probation for a while in responding to Jesus? Felt like you needed to be good for a while to, to justify you know, God's love to you in some way? I think we've all done that, probably. But Jesus makes a surprising statement. Make haste right away, quickly, come down. Because today, I want to have a relationship with you. I plan to come to your house. Jesus didn't give much of a sermon, did he? Uh, We don't hear Jesus saying, Zacchaeus, 
I have an interest in you. I know you have an interest in me, but before this, you need to spend some time making things right and doing other things, right? There was none of that. He just said, make haste because today I plan to come to your house. And I believe that today is the day that God wants to work in our house. There's no reason to wait to the end of the week to say, God, I want to make a decision for you. I want to to take an advanced step because I want you to have a deeper, closer walk with me. Zacchaeus did what all of us should do. It says, so he made haste and came down and received him cautiously, right? No, received him joyfully. Received him joyfully. But when they saw it, referring to the people, they said, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. It's interesting that before Jesus even had much of a conversation with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus already feels convicted that there are things he needs to do to make things right. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Okay? And then he explains, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Today. But it's interesting in the story, Zacchaeus responds, Jesus comes, but Zacchaeus also does a, a key role. And we want to talk about, you know, what is our part in confessing? Uh, I have been to meetings and I've heard people call to confession. And uh, sometimes uh, the things that go on are not as well informed as they might be. And so we want to talk a little bit about uh, confession tonight further. But the point is, is that... Uh, for Zacchaeus, he responded right away, and, and Jesus responded as well, and came to his house, and what a blessing it was. Okay? So, if you want to turn in your little booklets, uh, we're going to start, I believe, um, about line 456, how to confess. How to confess. We're actually, I told you that we would be starting at line 440. We, we read that quotation in closing last night about how another year has passed into eternity with its burden of record and the light which shone from heaven upon you is to prepare you to arise and shine. You were to be living witnesses, but if no special endeavor of a high and holy character bears testimony before the Lord, before the world, etc., then the name of God has not been honored. And eventually goes on to say, you know, if you have acted directly contrary to the will of God. How can you expect God to bless you? Those are very, very serious words. But how to confess? 456. When there are set before us things that are a cross for us to take up, we can never be one with Christ until we have lifted the cross. It may be the cross of confession. Notice that. The cross of repentance, the cross of humiliation, but whatever it may be, let us remember that in lifting it, we are one with Christ, partakers of the divine nature. Now let's pause for just a moment. When it comes to walking with Jesus, there's some things that happen. It's kind of a progressive thing, and we're going to look at this more as, as the week goes on. But first, we learn about him, and we fall in love with him, and, and, and we're going to talk about about receiving pardon, Christ's righteousness, and some of those things in greater detail. 
coming up, not tonight, but later. But there's this matter of coming to relationship with him. And then at some point, as I talked about last night, we learn about the things that stand in the way of our having a relationship with him. And then there comes the, the challenge, it's the way I want to put this, of what do I do with what I've learned? In other words, Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. And he could have chosen, like the rich young ruler, to turn away sorrowfully and say, Jesus, I know you're willing to come to my house and I really would like that, but I choose to remain a chief tax collector and a rich man because I don't want to take a chance and I don't want to lose you know, half my goods and I don't want to restore anything to, to people that I've defrauded. And I think all of us are faced with that issue. To what degree are we willing to take up what is referred to there in that quotation as the cross of confession? Something has to die. We have to die to self in a certain way if we want to take up uh, the work of confession. Okay? It says there, it may be the cross of confession, the cross of repentance, the cross of humiliation, but whatever it may be, let us remember that in lifting it, we are one with Christ. 461, when those in our churches commit sins, they should repent of them before God, and they should also repent of them before their brethren, asking the pardon that they are willing to give. Then the light that shines from the face of Christ will shine upon them. Let us clear the king's highway. Let us plead with God until we know that we have received pardon. Okay? And the next one, keep nothing back from God and neglect not the confession of your faults to your brethren. We're going to look at a couple of, of, of verses. Uh, last night we looked at some of the verses on confession. Um, this evening I want to talk about confession and this matter of restitution as well. Okay? Look at Ezekiel chapter 33.15 if you would. Ezekiel 33.15. As I said last night, I... I feel honor-bound to share with you on this subject. It says, verse 14, starting there, 33, 14, and 15, Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sins and does what is lawful and right. If the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. That's God's promise. That if someone who has made mistakes, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, but then it adds, and if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he's stolen, walks in the statutes of life, you know, if he, if he chooses to turn and live a godly way, it says he shall surely live, None of his sins which he's committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. And in verse 11 there it says, Say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Okay? God has no pleasure. And he says if, if, if we turn and if we do what is necessary, none of our mistakes will be held against us. And you would agree that it says clearly there in 15, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he's stolen, etc. 
he shall surely live. This matter of restitution is something that I think is more important than we realize. Okay? Let's look at a, at a few quotations on this. Actually, let's look at, at just a few more. Look at Leviticus chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says there, Then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offerings. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, etc. The point is in restoring, there's a principle of actually also restoring what should have been there had it remained with the person. That's part of the principle. And then one more in Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And remember I said this is the, this is the owner's manual. This is the, this is the owner manual of, of peace in the heart. It says, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or woman commits any sin, that man commits an unfaithfulness against the Lord and that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin which he's committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in plus, full plus one-fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. In other words, the Bible teaches that if you can't make restitution to the person, then you should make restitution to God. Okay, from what I can tell, those are, are the principles. Now, let's look at a, a few more quotations, and then I'm going to share some stories with you as well. Okay. 478, let those who have committed wrong give proof of their repentance by seeking to make full restitution. Let them in their afterlife give evidence of a genuine reformation, and they will assuredly enjoy the peace of heaven. Next one. God requires repentance and confession and restitution will always follow genuine repentance. Now in this case, the restitution has to do with relationships and what we've said about people. If you have prevaricated, if you have borne false witness, if you have misjudged and misinterpreted your brother, if you have misstated his words, ridiculed him, if you have injured his influence in any way, go right to the persons with whom you have conversed about him, with whom you have united in his work, and take all your injurious misstatements back. Confess the wrongs that you have done to your brother, for your sin will stand charged against you in the books of record until you do all in your power to correct the evil of your words. So there's not only a a financial restitution at times, sometimes there's a, a relational restitution that is required as well. And just talking as a family, I prefer to think that we're here in a a family discussion. Have you ever had someone say something about someone else that you really didn't know if it was true or not, but ever after it left a question in your mind? I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's happened to me. I know uh, not long ago, uh, someone helped me with someone who I'd always heard some, some... unflattering things about. And I found that what I'd been told was completely wrong. I didn't see even the, the tiniest instance of what I'd been told. And, and I realized that it was wrong. And, you know, we can cause so much damage to other people. But do we ever go back and try and make things right? Or 
Do we ever go to the person and say, you know, I've heard such and such, or I feel this, and correct me? That's, I believe, how God wants us to, to be in relationship with other people. I don't know if you've ever noticed, we tend to talk with each other about others instead of talking with the person. And that's how separation comes. Now notice, 492, strong words. There are many who will not be blessed till they make restitution of the tithe which they have withheld. Let me just pause there and then repeat it. There are many who will not be blessed till they make restitution of the tithe which they have withheld. God is waiting for you to redeem the past. The hand of the Lord, holy law, is laid upon every soul who enjoys God's benefits. Let those who have kept back their tithe make an accurate reckoning and bring to the Lord that of which they have robbed his work. Make restitution. Okay? Many will not be blessed till they have made restitution of the tithe. I'd like to share a bit of a story here. It comes from our early years about the revivals that came in 1888. This is actually, I, I read this in the, in the biography. It speaks of a revival that was scheduled to run from December 15 to 22, but the revival continued for an entire month. How about that? So you start with the thought of one week and you're still going for a whole month because the Lord is, is doing such a, a wonderful work. Um, at the time, uh, Ellen White was sick, so she began her work uh, in the hospital with the physicians and the nurses. And A.T. Jones and Corliss held meetings at the Tabernacle, the publishing house, and the college in Battle Creek. The principal topic to begin with was the topic of justification by faith. The truth as it is in Jesus, accompanied by divine energy, had been brought before the people, and we have reason to praise God, she says, for what has happened. Many have sought the Lord, notice, with confession of sins and contrition of soul, and have been blessed and made joyful by the God of their salvation. Those who have hitherto been almost destitute of faith have discerned its simplicity and have been able to lay hold of the promises of God. Meetings were held, some of them starting as early as 5.30 in the morning. Eventually, there were those who testified that they were free in the Lord, not free from temptation, Okay? Revival doesn't mean freedom from temptation. Jesus was tempted to. For they had these to contend with every day, but they believed that their sins were forgiven. And she says, how we long to have every soul come out into the liberty of the sons of God. She speaks of speaking to the students. And she said, later, Professor Prescott arose and attempted to speak, but his heart was too full, and he stood for five minutes, not saying a single word, uh, weeping. When he did speak, he said, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I'm glad I'm a Christian. Then he made pointed remarks. His heart seemed to be broken by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay? Many bore precious testimonies how God had forgiven their sins and given them a new heart. About this time, she said, wherever this message is declared, the fruit is good. A vigor and a vital energy are brought into the church and where the message is accepted, hope, courage, and faith comes into the faces of all. I'm using my own words to make it easier to understand. She says, Then I spoke in the afternoon from Isaiah 58 upon the Sabbath and the many ways that the Lord could be robbed. Read in regard to robbing God in tithes and offerings, called the people forward for prayers. 
She said, I also spoke, particularly on evil speaking, and sure results. All of these sins of which we've been guilty must be removed, and this robbery of God must be repented of. Though she was speaking of justification by faith, she spoke in very pointed, unvarnished, clear terms about you know, this, this problem of a relationship and, and, and this robbery towards God. She spoke of people beginning to confess. One brother, Lucas, and his wife came forward and made confessions. He said he had not paid his tithes, that he'd robbed God of $500, which he would pay into the treasury in a short time. The next day, she was calling on families. She visited the Lucas family and noted in her diary, he has paid no tithe for two years, and he, is, he was becoming a changed man in spirituality because he was robbing God. He gave me a note for the treasury of God for X amount of money. He recounted up all the interest and faithfully paid an honest tithe. Then he was happy. Others were also visited, some giving their notes for withheld tithe to be paid soon. She said, meetings have been held now for four weeks and many souls have a true conversion. They say they have never known what the converting power of God was before. And it goes on. The point is this. Well, and then one more little, little statement that she makes in, in a manuscript in 1889. She says, The blessings of that week of prayer extended through the church. Confessions were made. Those who had robbed God in tithes and in offerings confessed their wrong and made restitution. And many were blessed of God who had never felt that God had forgiven their sins. Um, here's the point. And it's true for me too. We cannot withhold tithe and expect to be blessed by God. That's the bottom line. And we need to believe that. We need to acknowledge that. Um, the tithe isn't ours to begin with, right? So we're robbing God multiple ways. And, uh, and I share this because she makes enough statements about how we cannot know forgiveness until we have, you know, returned the tithe that belonged to be returned, you know, that need to be returned, that... If I don't share that with you and you're seeking after the blessing and there's that issue in your life, um, you're not going to gain the blessing that's promised. That's just the bottom line. In some cases, it could be that there are other issues that, that uh, you need to, to go to someone else. And let me just share a few things about that. Um, she makes the following statements. In many of our religious awakenings, mistakes have been made in regard to confession. Okay, so we can confess the wrong way. We can do things the wrong way. I've talked about restitution now, a little bit on confession. While confession is good for the soul, there is need of moving wisely. I have been shown that many, many confessions should never be spoken in the hearing of mortals. Did you hear me? Many, many confessions should never be uttered out loud. Okay? Sins that are just between you and God don't need to be shared with anyone else. And sins that would cause people to think about the wrong things should never be mentioned in public. She actually makes a statement that those actually cause people to sin more. And therefore, they should not ever be mentioned. Let me just read a bit more. She says, For the result is that which limited judgment of finite beings does not anticipate. In other words, we don't realize what we're going to do. Seeds of evil are scattered in the minds and hearts of those who hear, and when they are under temptation, these seeds spring up and bear fruit, and the same experience will be repeated. So she says there are certain confessions that should never be uttered in an open meeting. Okay? 
For think the tempted ones, these sins cannot be so very grievous, for did not those who have made confession, Christians of long standing, do these very things? Thus the open confession in the church of these secret sins will prove a savor of death rather than of life. Now I don't know if people realize that. I've been to meetings where they said, please confess, and I heard confessions made publicly that absolutely did not belong there, and so I've always been concerned about that. She said, there should be no reckless wholesale movements in this regards. She says, there are confessions of a nature that should be brought before a select few and acknowledged in deep humility. Okay? Then there are confessions that the Lord has bidden us to make to one another. You know, if you have wronged your brother by word or deed, go first to be reconciled to him before your worship will be accepted to heaven. Okay? So if we have injured someone personally, we need to go to that person personally. But if we have done something that, that hurts the entire church, we need to go and confess to the entire church. But it seems clear from the Bible, certainly clear from her writings, that if we really want to know peace with God, confession is necessary. Remember what I said? I said it is our work by what? The first thing is is confession. And I believe that there are many prayers that are probably not heard because we have refused to take up the cross of confession. It's a hard thing to do. Hard thing to do. But it's, it's something that God calls us to do. And uh, so as we, uh, as we contemplate this, this afternoon or this evening, uh, it's a very important thing. Now, there might be some who would say, Dan, you know, you're being a little bit difficult, you're being a little bit hard. But as you study the history of revival, I mentioned that the, the revivals that seem to endure are the revivals where they insist on things like making things right and restitution. Uh, one of the most famous revivalists to ever live was a man by the name of Charles Finney. He worked in the early 1800s. He speaks of how one day a, a young woman came to him I'll just tell you this from the top of my head without reading my notes. Um, and she told him, she said, I have stolen from so many people, I cannot begin to remember everyone that I've stolen from. What am I supposed to do? He said, go and confess to every single person that you can remember. And she began going. It uh, was a great problem to her, but she began the work of confession and making restitution but as she went, she remembered more and more things that she had done. And she would come back and say, haven't I done enough? And he said, you have not done enough until you've done all, you've confessed to every person you remember and made restitution to every person that you've injured. She said to me on one occasion, Mr. Finney, I suppose I have stolen a million times. I find I have many things that I stole, but I cannot recollect from whom. I refused to compromise with her and insisted on her making restitution in every case in which she could by any means recall the facts. One day she informed me she'd even stolen from the local pastor. Uh, as usual, I told her, you've got to go. You've got to go to the pastor and, and admit that you stole from him. And so she did. At first she just kind of left a note at the door with it, but she realized that by doing that, this is an interesting point, that the pastor might suspect someone else. And she said, no, I need to go and say I was the one instead of just sending the, the, the anonymous note you know, with the, or sending the note with, with, with the shawl by just left at the door. One morning, uh, she sent for him to come to her mom's house where she was living. He says, I did. And when I arrived, I, I found that, that she had been 
in great uh, sadness. She said, Mr. Finney, I even stole this Bible. I've stolen God's word. Will God ever forgive me? What shall I do? I cannot remember where I got it. I told her, keep it as a constant remembrance of your former sins and use it for the good you may now get from it. There are times when you realize something's happened. You don't quite know, you know, who, or you may know who, but you have no idea where to find them. And I would like to suggest in those cases, you promise God that when you can, you will make restitution. Okay? Anyway, he refused to give her any peace. He refused to give her any encouragement until she had done everything she could to make things right. Anyone that had been defrauded, anyone, you know, that that she'd taken something from. This wasn't an Adventist man. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Serious people who have been used by God in our church, you know, they called for, for this kind of thing. And those outside of our church, because God has used people outside of our church too. We must not think we're the only ones that God cares about. They called for the same thing. And in his cases, because uh, his history is well known, the revival endured in the, li- <clears throat> in, the, in the lives of these people for at least a generation. Okay. And Ellen White talks about the fact, we read the quotation earlier, that there's a new order of things and pastors come in and convert people without ever asking them to atone for the past. And she says, because of that, they quickly convert, but, but nothing has really changed in their lives. And I believe that's one of the reasons why sometimes we, we don't have the strength we do. But if we insist on people truly coming to terms with the past and making things right in God's way, it will bring a, a change in our churches. I believe it's part of the process to experience real revival. So um, I would like to suggest Rose wants to say something. Oh, Rose wants me to share that, that in this situation, uh, the whole community became aware of, of this gout because she was going everywhere to, to have to confess her mistakes. But as a result of that, the community was so touched by what she was doing that revival came to the whole community. And, and I'd like to say something. All of us should make ourselves a committee of one. You know, we don't need to wait. Actually, Ellen White says, don't wait until the other person is willing to acknowledge, you know, Go. You be the first to go. You know, don't wait for some kind of ideal moment. Uh, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today, make haste. And uh, I've said it a few times already, the easiest time to obey is right away. The longer you delay, the harder it is because Satan will do everything he can to arrange circumstances so that you can't or so that friends will say, oh, don't take that seriously. You don't need to do that. But as I have studied history, as I've studied the Bible, as I've studied the writings of Ellen White, I have no doubt in my mind that if we really want God's blessings, we must follow God's way when it comes to this matter of confession of sin and making things right. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.